0: Hey, welcome to Infused Church Online. My name is Taylor, and today is ugly sweater day at Infused Church, thus the sweater. Now, if you watch regularly online, we would love to connect with you. If you wouldn't mind just sending me an email at taylor.infuse.church and letting me know that you watch online because we have some exciting things happening in 2020 for our online attenders, and we would love for you to be a part of it. Now, today we're going to continue our series Home for Christmas with part two, and we're going to be talking about some of the most stressful, tension-filled, relational conflict parts of our holidays, of parts of being at home for the holidays, and how we can make it better. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to today's message. Um, To those of you watching online, of course, in the room as well, we're in part two of our series, Home for Christmas, and today I'm going to tell a story uh, that reflects Parts of, or many parts, or maybe all the parts of our messy homes, our messy relationships, and especially sometimes the messy holiday gatherings that we put on. And I'm not just talking the mess physically that we make, but relationally that kind of comes with getting a bunch of people together for the holidays or getting family together for the holidays. And uh, this is a story that's uh, a little bit more intense, it's a little bit bigger than just um, not getting the gift that you wanted for Christmas, kind of like in the video, it's bigger than that. Um, It's the kinds of relationally tense uh, things that happen sometimes around the holiday, like when when someone says that they're going to show up, but then they don't. Or they say they're not going to show up, and they do. And then honestly, the fact that they're there kind of ruined your Christmas or will ruin the Christmas because of the attitude that they bring to it. Maybe some of you have a family like that. Uh, Maybe you are in a a family when y'all get together. uh, There's like an elephant or elephants in the room. In fact, there's like so many elephants in the room. Uh, But y'all just kind of tiptoe around the elephant, and you don't talk about it even though you know it's there, and there's frustration and tension that goes with that. Um, and it's the kind of family experiences uh, that uh, you know um, are happening because you get in the car afterwards and you turn to your spouse and you say, glad we got through that. We only have another year to wait until next year, yeah? I mean, the the kind of conversations that you kind of vent to your spouse or to a friend after you leave Christmas because somebody said something or this or that, and it's just, it's a mess. And so we're going to talk about a story that is a homecoming story that's a wee bit of a mess and will actually, I think, help us um, to, uh, one, understand some important things about God. In fact, it'll help us actually to understand some important things about infused church, and also just practically help you to navigate some of the home for Christmas kinds of messes that you may be in, may find yourself in, or are there, that have always been avoided. And today's story is a story that I've told a handful of times already at Infuse, but it's one of those stories that just, there's so many angles to it, that it's such a rich story that um, I, and especially because of our theme, Home for Christmas, I just, I couldn't not talk about it. And so even if you've heard the story a million times growing up, or you've been with us forever, and you've never missed a Sunday, and so you've never missed a time when I preached this story before, I think there'll probably be something new for you. And at the very least, uh, something to remember. Because I tell you, if I preach it and I remember things and I learn from it, I'm hoping and I think you will too, even though we've been through it a couple times. So last week, just to briefly, briefly recap last week, we talked about how uh, uh, relationships, how relationships make a home a home. That it's not actually the physical space, it's not the building, it's not the structure, it's the relationships that are in that home that make a home a A home that if you don't have many relationships centered around a location or a place uh, that you pay rent on or a mortgage on or you paid off, which is awesome, um, the reason is it doesn't feel like a home is because there's no relationships tying yourself to that home. And this is what we learned about last week, is also true for God that God wanted a relationship with us, wanted to better the relationship or right the relationship with us, and so He came to earth, as Christians we believe in, the, in Jesus, came to earth to dwell, to make His home among us, to be with us, to be with His children. And, then, um, and, and, so, and we're familiar with this idea in a lot of ways, especially around the holidays, because we tend to go home, whatever home looks like for us. Uh, to celebrate and to be around those who who we have a relationship with, uh, we have relationships with who are generally some of the more important relationships we have in our lives. So We know a little bit about "quote unquote" going home. Now I realize for some of you, you don't want to go home. Okay, the relationships keep you away from home, right? But you may end up going anyways because your mom guilted you or your dad guilted you where you had a fight with your spouse about going and you lost, so you're going to their house, whoever their house is, you know, and and you're just going to endure it, or better yet, they're coming over to your house, and so your home may not feel like much of a home because of the relationships that you have or the lack of relationships that you have with the people who are coming over. Because isn't it true that just because we value home so much, right, we have all these phrases like home sweet home, or there's no place like home, right? There's no place like home, okay? This idea of home, even despite the value of home, it may be a home, but it doesn't mean it's perfect. Just as we may have relationships, but it doesn't mean those relationships are important, or are, excuse me, are perfect. Those relationships may be actually quite Imperfect. They're the relationships that we avoid or that we smile and we endure because of past hurts or unresolved tensions or disappointment or because they just voted for you know who, you know, and you're just like, "Uh uh-uh, you know, or over dinner table, they're going to make those, you know, comments and you just like, ah, this is why I don't like coming home for the holidays. You get what I'm saying? Those kinds of tensions, those kinds of messes. And so today, my hope is to kind of resolve or at least make better the imperfect nature that is home sometimes over the holidays. Because what if we could make it better? Wouldn't that be worth it to make some of those important relationships, those home-centering relationships better? I think it would be. At least that's what God did by coming to earth. He made earth his home so that he could make the relationship better. And so Jesus is going to tell us how to go about this, and Jesus is going to touch on so many points in this story. We don't have time to cover them all, but I'm going to try to cover the highlights. Jesus tells us how um, to essentially make these relationships better in a little bit of a story or a, what's known as a parable. And if you grew up in church, you kind of know what a parable is, but a parable is essentially a story that illustrates a point. It's not a real story. It didn't actually happen, but it's a made-up story to illustrate a point, and he can illustrate a lot of points with, uh, with a story. And so one day Jesus is teaching, and he's got quite a diverse audience, and so maybe because of the diverse audience he has and all the listening ears he has, he, he like pulls out the big stories, like the really good ones, the, the gotcha stories. And this is one of those stories, um, because really no matter who you were in Jesus' audience at that moment, you were going to find something that was exceptionally helpful. Because he had on one hand, he had his disciples so like his 12 closest guys that were following him, and then he probably had a handful of other people who were following who considered themselves followers of Jesus, even though they weren't part of the 12. And then he had uh, probably a group of people who would be considered the sinners, because people who were nothing like Jesus tended to like Jesus and follow him around, and so he probably had a group of sinners. And then he had a group of religious people and religious leaders, okay? So if you can kind of think of a stereotypical religious kind of crazy person. Um, that's, uh, you know, that's that category, okay? And so he had this very diverse audience, and so he kind of pulled out this, this big story. And as the master teacher, he did it in such a way that just got everybody involved right off the bat. So he told this story about a father and two sons, okay? The first son, the firstborn son, the eldest son, uh, was exceptionally responsible, took care of business, got things done, that kind of son. But the second son was like everything that the first son wasn't. He was irresponsible, he was neglectful, he was mean, and he didn't seem to care or have any good sense of values. Sound like your Christmases, maybe? Or some of the people at your Christmases? Like, anybody have an irresponsible person in their family? None of you, okay, two of you, okay. Bad news for the rest of you, the reason you're, raising your hand is be- you're not raising your hand is because you're the irresponsible one, okay? <laughs> They just haven't told you yet. Okay. Okay. So, some of you are still processing that. That's cool. Okay. So, the youngest is essentially just a really bad dude. And, and he does something that just like really shocking, like just, uh, just harmful and hurtful and painful. He goes to his father and he says to his father, Dad. I want you to give me my inheritance because you're a wealthy man. You've got a lot of uh, wealth and land and all this stuff. I want you to give me half of it as if you were to die today. In other words, he goes to his dad and pretty much says, the most value you have to me as my father is dead. Because when you die, I get half of it all. And that is more important than you are to me. That is That is more important than the relationship that we have. And so at this point, Jesus' audience is kind of like, whoa, that is a terrible, terrible son. I sure hope the father isn't going to give in, to which Jesus, the master teacher, does exactly the opposite, and the father gives in. The father gave the son half of everything he owned, to which the audience is like, that's awful. Like, what a terrible, irresponsible father. I'm not sure who I hate more now, the father or or the irresponsible son. So, essentially, the second son takes all of this wealth, and he goes away to a faraway land. And it doesn't take him long to spend all the money, to lose all the money. He spent it on, he lost it all on what Jesus described as wild living. I'll let you fill in what exactly that means, but certainly you have seen people waste their life, waste money, waste time on wild living. In fact, some of you are in families that when that wild living family member comes into the room, it, like, gets quiet, right? You know, like, they're here and they're probably going to ask somebody for something and it just, it causes stress in the family, right? This could be your family with that very irresponsible person. This could be that point of contention in your holidays, and so this son loses everything, and then things get really worse for this son who, is, who has wasted everything. A famine strikes the land, and he's going hungry. He is desperate. He needs a job. So he gets a job feeding pigs. And it was so desperate that, that Jesus said he longed to eat what the pigs were eating. And if you were an onlooker in this, this moment, you would have seen all the faces, regardless of sinner, saint, everybody in between in Jesus' audience. They would have just been like, mouths like slightly open, like, ugh, you know, like disgusting. Because to Jewish, a Jewish audience, to not only have a job working with pigs— But to desire what the pigs were eating was just a level of, it was like below dirt. It was below like the worst of the worst because pigs were so unclean in Jewish culture. They were not kosher okay? I mean, this was just an extreme, extreme statement, so all the Jesus' audience is like, Ugh. and just as a side note, to help you to understand how big of a deal this was, in modern day archaeology, when, when archaeologists try to go and find uh, Jewish cities, ancient Jewish communities, like from the Old Testament, they will look and they will discover uh, uh, remains, and they know it's a Jewish community because there are no pig bones. That's how they determine if it's a Jewish community. Or not. That's how immensely disgusting this was to Jesus' audience. How low the Son had gotten in his life. And things got so bad for the Son that he came to his senses. That's what Luke says. As we begin the story in chapter 15, when he came to a senses, he came to a senses. In other words, and you've seen this happen in people's lives, they get to such a low point in their life where they're like, I got to do something different. This is not working out. I have to change. Or in church language, we use the word repentance. He repented. And that's generally thought of like a negative term because you have like angry Christians, which we'll talk about in just a second, that'll get up there and like, you gotta repent, you repent, 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 repent. And you're just like, I don't even know what that means, but it sounds angry and so I just don't wanna do it. And you kind of block that word off. Repentance just means to change directions, to choose a different path. And so this son had gotten to such a low point, which sometimes that's what it takes for us to, to get to a place where we're ready to change is such a low point. He gets to a low point that he decides to change. And here's what he said in his mind when he came to his senses. When he came to his senses, Jesus said, he said to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Not just enough food to eat, but food left over, food that goes down the garbage disposal kind of food. And here I am starving to death. In other words, it would be better to be a servant of my father whom I have deeply hurt and offended than it would be to be where I am right now because my decisions have brought me to the place of starvation and of almost imminent death. And so, I am going to choose to do something different. The dialogue goes on. Here's what he says to himself. He said, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, God, and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But at least take pity on me, Father. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. And at this point, and maybe this is you too, half of Jesus' audience was like, this guy's gonna get it. Like, he's going to get home, and the Father's just going to lay into him. And part of you maybe even be like, I hope the Father just turns him away, because this irresponsible, mean son is now groveling back, apologizing. And there is no apology for what that son did, and he should suffer. That was maybe half of Jesus' audience. And then there's the other half of Jesus' audience who is like, Oh, we just have to give him grace and welcome him and sweep this whole mess under the rug and just love on him. To which the other half of the audience is now like, oh my gosh, you are just weak and you need to, you know, bring the hammer down on this terrible, terrible son. Which is actually some of the tension maybe that you time, at times experience in your family too. That you look at your uncle, you look at your aunt, you look at your cousin or your sibling and you say, I just wish they would get what's coming to them. Whereas then your, your mom or your dad or somebody else in your family is like, no, 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 let's just be nice. Let's just love them and sweep this under the rug. And you're like, no, and it just creates tension in the family. And so as the story goes on, the, the audience is trying to figure out how is this going to go down when his father comes face to face with his son that left and took all of his money. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. So his father sees him from a distance, recognizes him, recognizes his walk, whatever that looks like, and the son begins to come over the, you know, the hilltop or whatever, and here's what the son does, and it's just, I, I can't even imagine, but I'm assuming Jesus' audience, like, mouth just kind of goes, what? Here's what the father does. The father saw him and was filled with not anger, but compassion and he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him this was so culturally backwards as if the pigs wasn't enough now the father fathers in jewish culture do not go running after their sons okay it's kind of like it's kind of like the mafia okay it's like i'm the father you know and you come to me you know and you ask for forgiveness from me and you kiss the ring and you know all that kind of stuff i don't have a you know like accent okay i'm just It's just not going to happen. I tried at home, and I was like, this is just embarrassing. So, okay. But this is so culturally, like, inappropriate. The father, who has done nothing wrong, who's done everything over and above for his second son, goes running to his son and embraces him and kisses him. And his audience is just like, what? He did what? What? And the son says to the father, I don't know if the son was just kind of like shocked by this. He says, Father, I have sinned. As if he needed reminding, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Do you not remember what I did and what has brought us to this moment? And what's so crazy is as if the father doesn't even like recognize the implications of what happened. As if the father says like, Maybe, but this isn't important because look at what the father says next. The father turns, goes to his servants and says, quick, not slowly, quick. Like, don't think about it. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. And not just the best robe, grab a ring from his finger so everybody knows he's a part of the family. And get sandals. He doesn't even have shoes. Get him some sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf, the calf that we have been fattening up for that big celebration upcoming. Okay, bring it and kill it now. Let's not wait. Let's do it now. Let's have a feast and celebrate my son's return. For my son, Luke goes on, or Jesus goes on in the story. For my son, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now found, so they began to celebrate. Now, this is where I want to unpack, and this is where it gets kind of, starts to get a little close to home for some of us, because if you remember in parables, when we've talked about parables in the past, in every parable, somebody is God, and somebody's us, and this is a kind of parable where you have to kind of decide which one's you. In fact, you may empathize and be related to even both of the sons in this parable, but one thing is undeniable, the father in the story is God. And there's so many things to learn about God from the story. And the first is that the father, this is so important, the father puts tradition, the father puts the norms of those cultures in those days aside to welcome his son home. Yeah, I know I'm not supposed to run. I know I'm not supposed to give my son these things. I know I'm not supposed to kiss him. But I'm going to put those things aside. Not because he didn't do wrong. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying what's most important is that my son was lost. What's most important is now my son is found. Here at Infuse, this is how Stephanie and I have envisioned Infuse from the beginning. This is how, at least I envision, I don't realize this always happens, but like on Sunday mornings, like you get out of your car in your first time, okay, and there's like somebody that just like runs up and gives you a big hug, and you're like, that's creepy, and I know some, like, you got to find a balance in this, okay, but that, that there's people here who are just genuinely, authentically glad to see you, and then you walk in, and there might be food, as if we're having like a celebration, and part of the celebration is because you're here, that we're glad to see you, And that we want you to know it. And sometimes we'll even do crazy things like ugly sweater sweater parties, just to like, you know, take it up a notch, you know? Have a little bit better of a party or something, you know? Just have a a party. And this is why in some cases, um, some of you, especially if you came from more of a traditional background, find our services to be exceptionally simple, like almost too simple, like sing a couple songs, talk a little bit, sing a song and leave. We do that because when the son came home, he didn't need tradition. He needed someone to love him. He needed to know the love of his father more than he needed tradition. And so, yes, we may not be the most liturgical or rigid or responsive reading kind of a church, but there is a reason behind that because for most people who leave and then come back to church, who have never been in church, don't need that when they show up. They need someone to say, good to see you. I'm glad you're here. And you know that this is powerful stuff, right? You remember that time when you really messed up and maybe someone loved you anyways. Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a mentor, maybe it was a teacher, you know, you really messed up and they could have just, uh, you know, uh, really laid into you and you could have gotten in a lot of trouble, but they didn't. They 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 like embraced you and they loved you and it was like a game changer in here. But I realize for some of you, you're like, yeah, but the sun, but the sun the, the, the confessed. I mean, the sun repented. So it's a lot easier, you know, because if you go up and you say, well, I'm sorry, you know, and it's a lot easier to forgive someone when they say they're sorry. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll be honest, most people, you and myself included, we, I didn't walk back into church after two years of being away and just be like, hey, I'm sorry, you know, sorry for all the sins I've committed. Sorry, sorry. I didn't do that and neither did the son. I mean if you recognize in the story, the father runs to the son regardless of what the son's going to say next. Yes, the son's about to repent. Yes, the son's about to say I'm sorry. But it doesn't matter to the father. He's just so glad the son is there. And that was a game changer for me in my faith journey was to walk into a church and someone was just so glad that I was there. So they began to celebrate. And they celebrated and they celebrated. Now, how many sons did the father have? It's not a trick question. It's two, okay? Okay, there's the first son, okay? Then there was the second son. And where was the second son while all this was going on? Being responsible. He was out in the fields. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field. He was working. He was taking care of business. He was earning an income. He was being responsible. He was paying his bills. He was cleaning up after himself. You know, he was just a responsible, contributing member of society. Now, he's probably on the side talking bad about the brother, okay, you know, because he's sitting there like, I've done all this stuff, and can you believe that? I've heard he's out there squandering my father's wealth, blah, 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 blah. He's probably talking down, okay, about him, you know, especially when you get in the car after the Christmas celebration, just talking down, okay. All right. You've never done that in your family, though? Yep. No, thank you. Somebody, like, wow. No. It was like a confident no. It was like, no. Okay. Okay. So the father, this other son's out in the field, and then the, the son comes in, he, and he sees that there's something going on. When he came near the house, the, Jesus goes on, when he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? And the, the servant replies, your brother, your brother who is gone, he's come. And your father has killed the fatted calf. You know the fatted calf we were waiting for your wedding to kill? For your graduation? You know that one? Yeah, it's a doner. Like, it's going to your brother. Yeah, the brother that was lost, that squandered your father's wealth, that one, yeah. He's back safe and sound, so your father's killed the fatted calf. You want to know the bar for your father to kill the fatted calf that your other son had to reach, or your other brother had to reach? Safe and sound. Literally, that's all he had to do. He just had to come safe and sound, and the father's, you know, off in the often the fatted calf. I think that's a little frustrating. Do you think the people in Jesus' audience are kind of like, wow, I'm now empathizing with the older brother because he's the responsible one, and now the younger brother's getting all the benefits for it? How frustrating is that? How, how, how tense is that family relationship now? Yeah, maybe he's changed Maybe the, the second brother has changed, but, but don't part of you want to just say like, yeah, but let's just test it out. You know, before we go quick and off the fatted calf and have a party, let's just see if he's really genuine, if he's really changed. Let's test it out. Let's put him in a halfway house, or an in-between thing, and give him a job, see how hard he works, and then we'll celebrate. That's not what the father does, though. And so as you can imagine, and as maybe part of you is feeling a little bit at this point in the story, The older brother was angry. Became angry and refused to go in. You ever met somebody who's kind of always angry? family member or a a pastor? There, There are angry pastors. I don't know if you knew that. There's angry Christians, I know. Shocker. There are. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're just kind of an angry person. Can I tell you why you're a little bit angry, can I tell you why you may empathize with the older brother a little bit more than maybe you should? It's because you think someone else is getting a deal that's better than you, even though you've worked really hard for that deal. That someone is unfairly getting something that really ultimately you should be getting, and it's frustrating. You want to know why there's angry Christians? Have you ever met an angry Christian? Have you ever been to like an Iowa State game or an Iowa game and they're like in a megaphone and with a sign and like they're telling you like how horrible you are and everybody is and all that kind of stuff you know have you ever met a Christian who like goes around and points out people's sins like you're a sinner you're a sinner gets on social media and like oh I can't believe you believe this I can't believe they did this or didn't do this and all this kind of stuff or you get together over Christmas dinner and they're just throwing out those judgmental statements you ever have anybody like that though they claim Christianity Can I tell you why they're angry? Or maybe that's you, why you're angry. And I don't mean to, like, you know, get upset with you. I'm just being honest. It's because those kinds of Christians, they serve, they give, they do, they read their Bible, they do what they're supposed to do. And I think deep down, they're just a little upset that God still loves those sinners. They want to let the sinners know that they're sinners, and they're also upset because God still loves them. Because they could end up in the same place, heaven, that they themselves, after a life of responsibility and serving God, would also end up in heaven. And it's frustrating that there would be people that God loves, but that they don't love. And they're upset about it. It's frustrating. You know what we call that? We call that self-righteousness. Self-righteousness that when you're more concerned with your own righteousness, with your own perfectness, and all the things that you do right, and all the responsibility and the good decisions that you've made, and you're not concerned about God's love, and you're not concerned about the people for whom God died, you're not a very good Christian if you're angry at the sinners of the world. Because, one, as a Christian, you shouldn't be shocked. Like, it literally says in the first couple chapters that there's sin. And yet, Christians sit there and they're like, oh, they sinned. Did you see that? They sinned. Yes, that's how people live their lives. It shouldn't be a surprise. The decision is what you're going to do about it. And are you going to judge them? And in so doing, making yourself self-righteous above them? Or are you going to love them like God loved them? Are you going to actually lean into trust that God the Father came to earth to right the relationship that was broken? The older brother is sitting on the outside saying, I'm not going to go into the home. And God the Father is saying, I'm going to make earth my home to right the relationship." So the father, the older brother refuses to go in, all that kind of stuff, okay? So the father comes out and pleads with him come in, come in, be a part of the party. And so he answers the father as any self righteous person would answer. And as some of your hearts want to answer, he says, look, all these years I've been slaving slaving, as in like four meals plus a snack a day and, and you, know, you know, my own room slaving and maybe an Xbox slaving. Okay, that kind of slaving. I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, not my brother, when this son of yours comes home, this son of yours who squandered your property, Jesus goes on, the, the son of yours that squandered your property, there we go, with prostitutes. I wasn't even to tell you, Dad. Please don't tell Mom, but he squandered it with prostitutes. He comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. And what do you have in this family? In this moment, you got one son who says, I'm not good enough. I'm unworthy. I messed up. And you have the other son who said, yeah, you did. And so I'm not even going to have anything to do with you. What does that create in a family? A standstill. Nobody can move forward. Has this ever been the case in your home? Has this ever been the case in your home? And I'm not talking your physical home. It could be, but I'm talking in your relational home, in the relationships that make your home. Has it ever been brought to a standstill because of self-righteousness? Has it been ever brought to a standstill because of someone's irresponsibility? because somebody looked down on that other person's imperfections and irresponsibility? You feel it when it happens, don't you? When it's in the room, it's uncomfortable, and it's awkward, and it hamstrings our relationships and our families and our churches and our friendships and our coworkers' relationships. It hamstrings us. It keeps us back. It holds us back. Because part of us is like, well, look at what I've done. Or a group of us is like, look at what I've done. But at the same time you look at what I've done, you need to also look at what they didn't do. Conflict. And in the midst of this, in the midst of this mess, we miss what God is trying to say. The goodness God is trying to bring to this moment. The, G, the point that Jesus is trying to get at about how God runs his home and how we should run our home. The father ends with this exceptionally important and profound statement. This is how God runs his home. My son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. You're going to get your half. You're going to get it. But we had to celebrate and be glad because his brother of yours was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and now he's found. Son, you work hard. Therefore, you will earn a reward. You reap what you sow. So if you work hard, you pay your bills and all that kind of stuff, guess what's going to happen? Life is going to be a little easier for you. You're going to get that regardless because you're just responsible. Good for you. You'll get your share. But this isn't about performance. Son, this is not about performance. Yes, the younger son underperformed, and you've overperformed. But now your choices are gridlocking our family, stealing, stealing from our family. Yes, I understand the younger son stole financially. No one's denying that. We're not okaying that. I'm just saying it's not the most important thing. God is saying it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is what was lost is now found, and that you and your brother are With me. It isn't about performance, it's about proximity, it's about being with me. Because maybe you've grown up in a home where it was all about performance and and performance was king, and you knew there was something missing in that. You knew there was a hole in your life, in your heart, in that family. It was cold, it wasn't warm, something was missing, it didn't feel connected as it should. There was something innately, you knew it wasn't right. Why isn't it right? Why are some holiday gatherings and homes painful and cold and not warm around the holidays? It's because it's about performance. And God's stepping in today and saying, it's not about performance, it's about proximity. You know this, when one parent is performance-based and the other is proximity-based, you know which one you like to hang around with more. You've seen it maybe in other families. When you've gone over to a friend's house or another family's house, you see that dynamic. And I'm not saying don't worry about performing well and taking responsibility for your life. I'm just saying that God is saying that what's ultimately important is proximity. God says, I just want you to be with me. And Jesus' is under, Jesus's point is that a home a home around christmas of all times celebrates proximity this is why he came not to be apart but to be with us yeah but, but pastor taylor what about what about confronting my brother or my sister or my sibling or my parents or whatever what about confronting the wrong bringing truth into their life up you know hitting them upside the head with a little truth you know so they like oh yeah you know and there's a time for that but I don't, and I don't know how this story ultimately turned out, like if, you know, if the younger son, you know, lived a good life from that point on. But I do know following Jesus. And I do know that when you are with Jesus and when you are following Jesus, when you are, prox- when you are worried more about proximity to Jesus than you are about your performance in the presence of Jesus, that you will experience life change. That when you are with Jesus, when you are following Jesus, performance will follow. That's why Jesus had invited tax collectors, zealots, the broken, the lost, the sinners to follow him. Why? It wasn't because they cut it from a performance standard. It's because he wanted them to be with him. And he wanted the world to know that God wants us to be with him. God's home celebrates proximities, proximity, being with. And my friends, I think ours should too. And I hope that you will leave today and consider making a home a family where proximity trumps performance. Proximity first to your Father in heaven, then proximity to those you care about most and make your home. Because then performance follows. And there is a part of you that just knows that's right. That knows how you were raised was missing something, and it was proximity, and you wished you had that. And your Father in heaven is inviting you to have it now, for him to be your father in heaven and for you to be with him. In church, this is what we have to continually remind ourselves of as a church, that we need to be a church, and all of us have this responsibility. You know I can't do it all. It is just not possible for me to be in proximity to everyone. We're just getting too big these days. This is a good problem, but it also creates an opportunity for the church to take responsibility and say, just as God prioritized proximity to me to be in relationship with me, I too will prioritize the relationships around me. And not be a self-righteous son, and not be a son who doesn't admit when they have done wrong, but ultimately to be a son or daughter of the Most High who's with God. I want to invite you to live a life and to build homes and relationships where that is center stage. And I promise you when you get home for Christmas, and maybe you have to be like overly dramatic about this, maybe when people come over to your house or you show up at somebody else's house, even the people in the home you don't like, just run up there to them like the father ran up to the son and embrace them. Maybe even give a big smooch on the forehead. That could be awkward, but just give it a try, okay? And just see if it changes the atmosphere of that Christmas. You already know it will. It's just uncomfortable. But it will make a difference. And that's part of celebrating proximity over everything else. Bow your heads, pray with me, sing a song, and wrap up for today. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just uh, thank you, for Jesus, for his stories, for his teaching, that we, your children, could better understand the relationship you want to have with us, that you want to be first and foremost with us, and you want to celebrate that. And out of that will come performance. Out of that will come the behavior that reflects our relationships and proximity to you. So, Father, help us as as we go about the next week and as we go through the holidays, we go through some of those tense, messy relationships that we have in our life, that we would go forward and be those people who prioritize proximity, who prioritize the love of the Father, first and foremost. And and as we prayed about at the beginning of the service, that in so doing, we would be a little bit of a light to the world, that people would be glad we came to their Christmas, to their home, just as our Father in heaven is glad when we walk in to him and his home. Lord, we thank you for these words. Help us to live them out every day. In your name I pray. Amen. Part of being a Jesus follower is creating environments, creating relationships, creating homes that reflect the heart of the Father in today's parable. And most importantly, to just reflect the heart of our Father in heaven. And so my challenge to you, especially around the holiday season, is that you would go out of your way to engage at work and at home and in your small groups with a posture of open arms and celebration like we learned about today. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next week.